Welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Welcome to the TSRA's Clinical Scenario podcast series. We are launching this series with the goal of preparing our colleagues to handle real-life scenarios that we may encounter in our practice. In order to simulate a clinical scenario where you have to think quickly on your feet and alter your management based on the information that you're given, the way we are hoping to structure our clinical scenarios podcast is to go through two to three scenarios in about seven to ten minutes each with some feedback in between, which we hope will be short, sweet, and relevant to our listeners. To start off the series, my name is Yihan Lin, and I am a cardiothoracic surgery fellow at the University of Colorado. Today, we're joined by Dr. Christopher Scott, who is an assistant professor of thoracic surgery at the University of Colorado. Dr. Scott, welcome. Thank you, Yihan. Well, Dr. Scott, I think now we'll move on to the cases that you have prepared. Okay, thanks, Yihan. Sounds good. So, scenario one. A 77-year-old man is in the emergency room with one day of GI distress and retching. He's currently now febrile with a white count of 20, and on x-ray, the left chest is whited out. I'll go down and see him in the ER, and the first thing I want to make sure is that he has stable vital signs. Do you have his vital signs available? Yes, yeah, so he's tachycardic, febrile with a pressure of 90 over 60. Okay. Before I resuscitate him, is there anything pertinent on a review of his history of this presentation and his past medical or anything pertinent on his physical exam? Nothing else pertinent. Is there anything specifically you'd like to know? Yes. I'd like to know if this retching has any hematemesis or if it's GI contents, if he has any signs of peritonitis, and also if he's had any history similar to this before. This is the first episode. There's a little bit of blood in the emesis and no abdominal pain. Okay. I would first start resuscitating the patient with fluids. I would get a full set of labs, which includes a CBC, a lactate, and a CMP. I would start broad-spectrum antibiotics and antifungals, and then I would place a left chest tube before sending him up to the CTICU. Okay, you place a left chest tube and you get purulent um, drainage from the tube. Okay. What would you like to do next? Have his vitals improved with the resuscitation? They're stable. If the patient is stable, then I would plan to get an esophagram for this patient. I would also get a CT chest abdomen pelvis with both PO and IV contrast. Okay, uh, your esophagram shows a free extravasation of contrast in the left pleural space right above the GE junction. And a CT scan essentially confirms this with a, noted with a left uh, pleural effusion. And just to confirm, I don't see any masses and also is there any evidence of leaking into the intra-abdominal cavity? No to both of those questions. So in that case, if the patient is stable, I would consent him to go to the operating room and I would consent for an EGD, a left thoracotomy, and a repair of esophageal perforation. 
Okay. Your EGD, you do not see uh, any significant leak. There's no massing on endoscopy, and otherwise the stomach and proximal duodenum look normal. Can you tell me a little bit about the conduct of the operation? First, I would switch out his ET tube after the EGD to a double lumen tube <clears throat> so that I can perform single lung ventilation. I would place the patient in right lateral decubitus position, do a posterior lateral thoracotomy. While I was doing this, I would harvest an intercostal muscle flap to be used later in the operation. I would divide the inferior pulmonary ligament so that I can retract the lung to expose the esophagus, identify my injury, and then extend the injury or the myotomy superiorly and inferiorly so that I know what the full extent of the injury is. After that, I would repair the esophagus in two layers, place my intercostal muscle flap above the repair, and then place a few large bore chest tubes before I close the thoracotomy. At what space would you like to make your thoracotomy through? Uh, the fourth intercostal space. Okay, you make your fourth intercostal space thoracotomy and you're looking uh, at the hilum of the lung. The exposure of the distal esophagus is quite difficult. Right. I guess through the initial esophagram, I knew that this was very distal. So I would probably make my incision lower if I had to do it over again. But in this case where I've already made my incision, I would then do a, a rib resection so that I could get better exposure to the distal esophagus. Okay. Let's same patient, but when you're exploring the distal esophagus, you notice a hole in the esophagus that's greater than 50% um, circumference. Would you change your OR plan based on this finding? In the setting that the esophagus is essentially obliterated and there's no way to put that esophagus back together or repair the esophagus, then I would staple off the esophagus at the hiatus. I would debride the distal esophagus and resect that and leave as long of a stump as possible. And then I would do an end esophagostomy through a left neck incision. And then I would do a G-tube via a laparotomy. Okay, you do your uh, esophagostomy and your G and J tubes and get the patient out of the OR and stabilize. Thank you. Great. Was that the end of the scenario? Yeah, end of the scenario. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, yes, do you mind giving some feedback? Yeah, so I think that you covered all of the basics in terms of demonstrating uh, a differential. I think that in terms of the initial data collection, you can be a little bit more direct in terms of not just asking, is there anything else I need to know, but using your differential asking very pertinent uh, questions so that you can move quickly through that part. That's an area that you don't want to spend a lot of time on. So rather than do like a shotgun approach, be very succinct and pertinent with your additional questions, if you have any at all. And then I think that, you know, a small hiccup with the thoracotomy, you're going to want to make your thoracotomy lower, but you realize that and you kind of talk through that. I think that that's fine. And in terms of the conduct of the operation, that's all fine. With the damage control surgery, I think that you consider resecting a portion of the esophagus, stapling it off at the hiatus and bringing out, you know, a, a cervical esophagostomy with some length on the esophagus for ultimately, hopefully, a reconstruction down the road. I think that was okay as well. So 
And that scenario took seven minutes. So it certainly, that's about as long as any scenario is going to be. Great. All right. Thank you for that. I guess we can move on to the next scenario. Okay. Scenario two, you're doing a staging bronchoscopy and cervical mediastinoscopy for a right upper lobe, four centimeter biopsy proven adenocarcinoma. You biopsy what you think is a node and suddenly you get a significant amount of bleeding. How would you like to handle this? The first thing always is to immediately pack the area. Um, and I would do this through the scope with vaginal packing and apply pressure. And then I would immediately let my anesthesia and OR colleagues know that we potentially have some bleeding. I would make sure that we have blood in the room and that we also have our perfusionist available. Before a mediastinoscopy, I always prep the patient from the chin to the groins just in case we get into a situation like this where we may need an emergent sternotomy. So that would already be done prior. And I always make sure that we have adequate IV access prior to the start of the procedure. Okay. So you do those things. You pack the, the pretracheal space and that controls temporarily the bleeding. What would you like to do next? So the next thing I would want to know is when I got into this bleeding, what area or what lymph node level did I think I was biopsying? And was this dark blood or was it bright red blood? You were biopsying level 4R. It was dark red. What do you think you potentially injured? In this region, the two possibilities are the azagus or the SVC with the azagus being more likely. Okay. So you pack the neck. You've taken the packing out now to reassess the situation and immediately you encounter a significant amount of bleeding. How would you like to proceed from here? When I repack the neck, does that control the bleeding again? That's correct. Okay. I think in a scenario where packing controls this bleeding, but we need to get a definitive way to manage this bleeding, I would consider doing a posterolateral thoracotomy so that I can do my definitive operation. And so in this case, since it's a mediastinoscopy, most likely I only had a single lumen tube. So I would let my anesthesia colleague know to place a bronchial blocker. I would then put the patient with the right side up and then attempt to do a posterolateral thoracotomy. Okay. You do your posterior thoracotomy, identify an injury to the azagus and repair that. Is there anything else you'd like to do? I would do the right upper lobectomy, but also still need to get an assessment of the lymph node stations and do a mediastinal lymph node dissection at that time. Okay. The patient is stable, so you proceed with your mediastinal lymphadenectomy and lobectomy and close and get out of the operating room. Let's come back to the scenario again. Let's say you, for our biopsy, dark red blood, you pack and the bleeding uh, uh, is not controlled with the packing. What would you like to do? In an emergent situation, I would proceed with a median sternotomy and control the bleeding through that incision. Okay. You do your median sternotomy and you have a very difficult time exposing the posterior portion of the azagus. Is there anything that you can add to improve your exposure? 
Yes. And, and one thing to mention also in a scenario like this, I would be making sure that we start blood, et cetera, so that we're not behind. But in the situation where I've done my median sonotomy, but I can't get access to the azagus, then I would tee off my incision and do a hemiclamshell at the fourth intercostal space to get more exposure. Okay. Backing up, you're doing your mediastinoscopy at the subcrinal level and you immediately encounter significant dark red bleeding. So over the carina and dark blood is most likely right pulmonary artery bleeding. So again, the first thing to always do is place a bunch of packing, let my uh, team know that there's bleeding. And, and does this control the bleeding? Yeah, it's a stable situation. Okay. I would expose the RPA. I think it's easiest to do this through a median sternotomy. Okay. How do you expose the right proximal um, right uh, PA? So after the sternotomy, I would open the pericardium widely. I would retract the SVC to the left and the ascending aorta to the right, and the RPA would be in between those two structures. And I would place a sponge stick to gain immediate control of the RPA. And then after that, I would get proximal disc control and then repair the RPA primarily. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, Great. that's uh, the scenario two. Awesome. Um, feedback, Dr. Scott? Yeah, so nice job again, Johan. One of the things in terms of, and the more of these you do, you'll kind of develop a certain level of kind of confidence with just navigating and ver verbal verbalizing things that you're thinking, but you know, you want to kind of be definitive with your actions. So rather than saying things like, I would consider doing this, I would consider doing that, unless it's, there are two options that are equally as good that you're choosing between and you're demonstrating your thought process behind it. I would, I wouldn't say I would consider doing a sternotomy. I would say my plan is to do a sternotomy, alert perfusion, prime a pump, get some blood in the room, expose the, you know, be a little bit more definitive because that's really what you need to do. There's not another option in that scenario. So I think other than that, you, you know, the, I think you talked through the scenario as well. You understood you know, the, 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 the anatomy and how to handle some of the complications that could potentially come. So uh, nice job. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Scott. And before we end the podcast, do you mind also briefly talking about potential ways that the case could have gone a little bit differently and maybe just a quick description of how you would manage it? So for example, the case that we just talked about, what, would, what you would do if a um, patient had a prior sternotomy, for example, Sure. Yeah. So, you know, a complication if it's a prior sternotomy and maybe they've had a cabbage in the past, obviously, if they need an urgent sternotomy, that may be quite difficult. So depending on where the bleeding is, if it's, you know, something like the innominate artery, if it's, you know, you get massive bleeding right as you enter the neck and you think you've injured the innominate, you may get by with the partial upper sternal split. Otherwise, if you really need to commit to a sternotomy, I think it's really important to verbalize the, the, the chance that there may be an injury to the heart during that, that time. And so you would definitely want to get a pump in the room primed, get everybody in the room up to speed in terms of the potential for complication and in, in, in a pretty massive and significant bleeding and the need to go on cardiopulmonary bypass. So, and I think that overall, you know, as you play these scenarios out, especially for significant bleeding, if you haven't verbalized that you're thinking about 
those potential complications and for instance, needing cardiopulmonary bypass, you may find yourself in the scenario needing it urgently and then realizing that you haven't thought through that yet. So it's always good. I mean, if you, if you realize that in hindsight, that's still, that's still good, but it's, you know, obviously demonstrates a higher level of thinking and knowledge. If you have already thought about and verbalized that before you've gotten yourself into that situation. Got it. So you would recommend if you forget something to still come back and, and mention it. Yeah, you because you, you still you even though it's after the fact, you still have realized it. So I think it's important to verbalize that without spending too much time to let them know that you know that is something that you're aware of is necessary to treat and to manage the scenario. They want a correct management option as well as a safe management option, and so it's it's always good to err a little bit on the side of being safe and prepared in these um, particular circumstances. Got it. Dr. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to help us with our first Clinical Scenarios podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity. We hope to record many more of these Clinical Scenarios podcasts. So if you are a resident or fellow who wants to record one of these with a faculty member, please reach out to the TSRA for the opportunity. Again, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Scott. Thank you.